We'll hear argument now in number 95-966, Kenneth Ogilvie and Stephen Ogilvie Minors versus United States, and 95-977, Kelly Ogilvie versus the United States. Uh, Mr. McAllister. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the minor children of the decedent in the wrongful death suit underlying this case have raised before this Court two independent and potentially dispositive legal issues. The first is whether the punitive damages that the children received in connection with the death of their mother are excludable from gross income as any damages received on account of personal injuries. The statute on its face does not contemplate a distinction between punitive and compensatory damages. The statute says any damages, a word that the United States frequently does not include in its quotations of the statute in its brief in this court. Certainly there was a long-standing, has been a long-standing understanding in tort law that there is a difference between punitive and compensatory damages, and this court has often stated that Congress is presumed to have known the state of the common law when it enacts statutes. Congress easily could have said only compensatory damages received on account of personal injuries should be excluded, but it did not do so. It said any damages received on account of personal injuries should be excluded. In fact, when Congress has wanted to draw a distinction between punitive and compensatory damages, it has expressly done so, for example, in the Federal Tort Claims Act, in which Congress precluded liability of the United States for punitive damages arising from the tortious conduct of its employees. And indeed, the IRS itself has at times read this statute in precisely the way we contend it should be read, to exclude any and all damages that are recovered in connection with a personal injury suit. Well, of course, you, you've now used the term in connection with, but the statute says on account of, and it's my impression that government's position is that punitive damages are not on account of the personal injuries. That is certainly the government's contention, Your Honor, and we believe that's wrong for several reasons. First of all, if you look back to the language of the statute as originally enacted in 1918, and the substance of it has not changed, but the organization and the order has changed to some extent. The original provision in 1918 basically excluded accident or health insurance benefits or workers' comp benefits, which the statute then said received as compensation for personal injuries, plus any damages received on account of personal injuries, whether by suit or agreement. So that the statute itself, when you look at how it was originally enacted, it was a very odd way if Congress intended all of those things to be limited to compensation to list certain things followed by the phrase received as compensation for personal injuries and then to go on and say plus any damages received on account of personal injuries. Furthermore, when this Court talked about the on account of language and its decision in Schlaer recently, the Court talked about whether the damages were attributable to an underlying personal injury or whether the underlying personal injury affected the amount. The Court concluded that liquidated damages under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act did not satisfy either of those conditions. But punitive damages are different. Punitive damages do satisfy those conditions in a couple of ways. First of all, as this Court recognized recently in BMW versus Gore, punitive damages, both the availability and the appropriate amount in most jurisdictions, depends on considerations of the underlying harm, the nature of the harm, the extent of the harm. Gore recognizes as much when it talks about the first factor, for example, the reprehensibility of the conduct, talks about a personal injury is more egregious than property damage, a physical injury, in, in essence, is more serious than perhaps a dignitary injury. And most jurisdictions, if not all, recognize those concepts as far as punitive damages are concerned in determining whether they're appropriate and in what amount is necessary. 
Furthermore, it's the, the rule in virtually all jurisdictions, again, if not all, and the traditional rule is that there can be no award of punitive damages in the absence of proof of actual harm and generally in the absence of proof of actual damages. There needs to be an actual compensatory award made before punitive damages are allowed at all. And for those reasons, even within the attributable to language and the affecting the amount language that this court endorsed in Schlaer, the punitive damages in this case satisfy that test in a way that the liquidated damages under the Age Discrimination and Employment Act did not. Furthermore, punitive damages, as we suggested, do sometimes serve compensatory purposes. So even if the court is to view it in that fashion, historically that was clearly the case. We've cited the Black's Law Dictionary from the time period when the statute was enacted, which clearly contemplates that in some situations they serve a compensatory purpose. But even more recently, in the 1996 amendment to the statute, Congress recognized that sometimes what the states call punitive damages may in fact serve compensatory purposes. And that recognition is in the new section 104C, in which Congress has said in in the new 104A2, punitive damages are no longer excluded, except, it says in subsection C, in a wrongful death suit where only punitive damages are allowed, and the jurisdiction of which I'm aware is Alabama, there may be a couple of others, Congress has said in that circumstance, those punitive damages are excluded, apparently because... Where, where is that set forth? In, in the, I wish there was some place where the whole text of the, of the current code is set forth, including that amendment, and there was an 89 amendment? Is, is There's an 89 amendment, Your Honor, which, which altered the scope of the original... The 1996 amendment does not appear in any of the original briefs because it it was passed by Congress in August and signed by the President in August after the briefing had been completed. Uh, Part of the text is is included in the supplemental briefs. I don't know if 104C is actually included in the supplemental briefs. But that text was all extremely recent and after the merits briefing, briefing was basically completed in this case. The 1989 amendment is discussed in the briefs. Well, of course, you know, when, when, I, when I read the United States Code, I don't, uh, I don't do it piece by piece and figure out which, uh, which paragraph was enacted uh, in 1918, which was enacted in 1989 or 1996. I read it as a whole, and it seems to me uh, one has to uh, decide whether punitive damages are covered or not on the basis of the whole text as it now appears. Well, I think that's correct. I'd like to see the whole thing set forth somewhere. Mr. McAllister, as far as the most recent amendment is concerned, the effective date is from the time of that enactment, so that is not law for purposes of this case. It's certainly not, Your Honor, in terms of resolving the statutory interpretation issue present here. All I'm trying to suggest is that in the 1996 amendment, Congress itself is recognizing that sometimes punitive damages may serve compensatory purposes. The example it recognized is the Alabama situation where in a wrongful death suit, all the plaintiff is allowed to recover. The only thing is punitive damages. And Congress said, even though those are labeled punitive damages by the state of Alabama, we want them to be excludable under Section 104. And what about the 89 Amendment? Was that uh, also uh, only prospective? The 89 Amendment was prospective, but it's important because what the 89 Amendment does, it can be read two ways, but, but what the lower courts have strongly endorsed is the view that what Congress understood at the time was that all punitive damages as of 1989 were excludable under Section 104. There was a debate between the House and the Senate as to how they might narrow the scope of that. What they ultimately ended up with was a provision that says the exclusion shall not apply in any case not involving physical injury or physical sickness. And that narrowed the scope, but it remained the case that punitive damages received in a physical injury case 
are exclusive. <laughs> in fact, the House Mr. McAllis, I don't understand your reference to lower courts. I thought that this pre for pre-1989 and post-1989 to 1996, that all circuits said that these awards, punitive damages awards, whether on account of personal injury or on account of something else, are taxable. Isn't that the law in all the circuits except the Sixth Circuit? I don't believe that's correct. And certainly most of the cases come after the 1989 amendment. And, and what I'm suggesting is that the lower courts have, have, when they've decided these cases, looked at that amendment and said, what well, what, what circuit other than the Sixth Circuit has ruled in favor of taxpayers on these challenges? You're right. And no circuit other than the Sixth Circuit has ruled in favor of taxpayers. The tax court itself had at times ruled in favor of the taxpayers. But the tax court is subject has and was, was reversed so. by circuits on further review. Yeah. That's correct. The, the point I'm trying to make is that the 1989 amendment shows what Congress understood the law to be. And that is certainly not determinative or conclusive in our view. But that may well be or should be accorded some weight and some consideration here in that what Congress understood the statute to do is exactly, and in 1989 is exactly what we're contending it does. And most of the lower courts that have looked at it have said that it certainly appears that Congress understood the statute to exclude all punitive damages up to the point at which it amended it in 1989. And in line with your view, if you're correct that these awards are not taxable, then juries should have been charged, should they not, that whatever you award in punitive damages will not be subject to tax? They, they could have been charged that, Your Honor, and certainly if punitive damages are subject to taxation, they probably should also be instructed that that is the case, so that the damages that they are awarding will be taxed and the plaintiff will actually receive less than the full amount that the jury is assessing. That would be a matter of state law. That would be generally a matter of state law when you're talking about state tort actions, how the jury is instructed in terms of those tax consequences. That's correct. The United States, and to, to go back to Justice Scalia's point about interpreting the statute as a whole, the United States suggests that the title that goes with the statute, Compensation for Injuries or Sickness, suggests a more limited or narrower scope. The problem with that argument is that title was not present in 1918, and there's no suggestion that there was any debate by Congress when that title was added as part of apparently the codification process that they were in any sense altering or changing the original scope of the statute. The operative language has remained the same from 1918 onward. What has happened, though, is as the, as the tax laws were codified, the, what was originally one sentence drawing the distinction between accident or health insurance benefits and workers' comp benefits on the one hand received as compensation and any damages received on account of personal injuries, that distinction has been somewhat obscured by the breaking down of it into three, what is now three separate provisions in the tax code, A1, A2, and A3. Well, it goes, it goes on to A5 at this point, doesn't it? It does go on to A5, yeah. Your Honor. What do you make of the textual uh, argument <clears throat> or the textual distinction? I'm looking at page 22 of the government's brief, uh, which, which quotes some of the other subsections. Um, A1 uh, provides an exclusion uh, for certain sums as compensation for personal injuries or sickness. The three refers, again, to certain sums received for personal injuries and sickness. Uh, four, again, uh, uses the, the four language. And that suggests that the specific 
dollar amounts that they're referring to are those which are attributable to the sickness or the injury as distinct from something else. Your subsection 2 uses the phrase on account of, which would suggest, uh, by contrast, a broader meaning. Which we, We seem to have a choice, I guess, of statutory interpretation rules. We could either say... Well, the distinction presumably is intended uh, to to uh, uh, to enact a difference, uh, or we could say, well, on account of is not entirely clear, and we ought to use the criterion of of, of Nascatura Sokis. If if we want to know what this one means, which is not clear, look to what its companion provisions mean, which are clear. Which of those two criteria should we adopt in in uh, in assessing the contrast in the language? Well, Your Honor. I- certainly our view that you should look at primarily at the language of A2 itself, which on its face suggests a broader interpretation. Any damages received on account of it would have been extraordinarily easy for Congress to have said as compensation, which it did with the rest of that statute when it first enacted it. So that, yes, the companions around that provision perhaps do suggest a narrower focus, but certainly in the original provision and the substantive language itself has not changed, a broader construction is suggested. Uh, and again, without going back through the history, when you simply look at these provisions today, that one sits in the middle of all these other what appear to be purely compensatory provisions. But our view is you, you cannot fully understand that provision or give full effect to its language without looking back to the history of it and following through how it has come through the first codification, the recodification, and how it ended up where it is today. So you think the history is more significant than just the contrast in the language reading the statute as Justice Scalia would as a whole today? I think both are important in the sense (laughs) that the history is certainly relevant, but to the extent that provision indicates a different scope than the others, this Court should give effect to that different scope. Mr. McAllister, what about the ground rule in in interpreting this dense tax code, everything is income except, and exceptions are to be narrowly construed. Your Honor, we recognize that that principle is there. In, in our view, the, the way to deal with that is that the court should look at the language itself and look at the history, and we believe when you do that, that the language is no longer so ambiguous so that it is not a choice of two interpretations competing, which we simply have no way to choose between one and the other. In fact, the history strongly suggests that one interpretation is the correct interpretation, the broader interpretation. But I do recognize the existence of that default rule as it's been characterized at times. But we're suggesting that when you look at all of the surrounding evidence here, the things that Justice Souters talked about, the contrast in the language, the history of the provision, where it came from and how it got to be where it is today, that really only one conclusion makes sense here, or at least is the stronger conclusion. There's no default, is your position. That's basically, there should not be a default in this instance, because it's not a situation where you simply cannot tell which is the better view based on the, what evidence is available to this court. And in fact, again, Congress in 1989 essentially declared its understanding, and we're not suggesting, as the United States tries to assert in its brief that that 1989 amendment tells you anything about intent in 1918. We're simply saying (coughs) Congress demonstrated that it understood the statute, the language of it, to mean in 1989 that all punitive damages received in a personal injury suit were excluded. It's possible, isn't it, that Congress might, in an excess of caution, amend the statute, feeling perhaps the statute, the existing language, gives the result we want, but we want to make absolutely sure? That's certainly possible, Your Honor. 
But what the Tenth Circuit clearly found, and, and I think most courts that have looked at this, when they looked at the legislative history, the, the discussion, what, how this amendment came about, and also the House Ways and Means Committee report, it seems pretty strong, the inference, that Congress thought all of these were excluded and it wanted to limit that. And the question was how much and exactly what fashion the 1989 amendment went partway, the 1996 amendment went the rest of the way. With Hard to rely on the Tenth Circuit. Uh, in support of your position when they came out? They came out right. because they ultimately decided that the, the reasons, the justifications for the competing views here were essentially equal, and they resorted to what the court called in that case the default rule. And if they were essentially equal, you wouldn't be quarreling with that, would you? But we do not believe they are essentially equal, Your Honor. With the court's permission, I would like to reserve the remainder of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. McAllister. Uh, Ms. King, we'll hear from you. Please proceed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In 1918, Congress created an exception to taxation for the traditional tort victim. When asked to extend this same exception to the hybrid statutory victim, this Court in Burke and Schleyer determined that the exception was not to be extended. The enactors in 1918 did not know about the hybrid statutory rights, statutory remedies for age and gender discrimination that would be created in federal statutes some 50 years later. Those congressmen in 1918 wrote the statute for what they understood and what is before the court today, the common law tort claim. This court has never before been asked to apply this statute to common law tort claims. Instead, the recent cases of Burke and Schleyer have asked this court to apply the exclusion to the hybrid federal statute with legislated remedies. Those remedies are based primarily on lost wages. Because the original statute allows only the exclusion for tort or tort-like claims, and because the hybrid statutes provided for contract-like recoveries, this court in Burke determined that there was no tort-like claim. In Burke, the court tested the type of claim by a review of the type of damages that could be awarded under the federal statute to determine that the claim was not tort-like, but instead more in the nature of a contract claim, a contract for wages. In Slayer, the court was once again asked to name the type of claim and again resorted to the analysis of the type of damages to do that. A claim is known by the type of damages it produces in these hybrid federal statutes. The matter that is before you today is well, not... Well, was Schleyer uh, liquidated damages? Uh, My understanding that it was, Your Honor. The matter that is before you today is not the hybrid statute in which you must determine the type of claim. It is the wrongful death of Mrs. O'Gilvie, the classic and quintessential tort claim, and precisely the type of tort claim contemplated by the 1918 Congress when writing the statute. Now, when the statute was divided in 1954 into the numerous clauses that you've already discussed. Section 104A2 was cut apart from its first clause, from its context, if you will. And the potential for reading this statute in two separate ways was created. The entire sentence in Section 104A2 has two separate and distinct meanings that each seem plain. This is a rare and unusual type of ambiguity, 
a patent structural ambiguity, one we seldom encounter in the English language. Before Slayer, every court which had found the statute plain had found in favor of the taxpayer. The test of ambiguity is whether reasonable persons disagree as to the meaning of the words. It is apparent that Section 104A2, out of its context, out of its original context, is ambiguous. One-third of this court was struggling with the issue of whether the court, excuse me, the statute was ambiguous or not. Seven Federal Circuit Court panels have found this statute to be ambiguous, including the Tenth Circuit in Ogilvy here, after this court's decision in Schlaer. If we may presume that justices and judges are reasonable persons, the test of ambiguity is surely met. So that any time there's a dissenting opinion, the different, taking a different view of the statute, the, that's a sign that the statute is ambiguous? Mr. Chief Justice, I, I would not go that far as to say that. For three, the three out of nine dissent, then it's ambiguous? Again, Your Honor, I would not say that. I am merely presenting... About four out of nine. <laughs> <laughs> but your position is it's not ambiguous. It's not. No, my position is that it is ambiguous out of context of the original statute. But didn't all those circuits read it in context? There were arguments presented to all of them? Each of those circuits determined that it first was ambiguous and then read it in a very tunnel vision fashion, only the language of the current statute, Section 104A2, as written. The two distinct tests that have been found in the language are what is the underlying claim, and the second test is what is the nature of the underlying damages. You're going to tell us why you win if it's ambiguous, aren't you? Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, the very nature of a patent structural ambiguity is that it has two distinct, clear, and mutually exclusive meanings. The courts have examined this statute in a tunnel-vision manner and looked either at one or the other of the interpretations. The type of ambiguity that we have here is resolved only by context here, the original statute. Upon a finding of ambiguity, the courts are not relieved of the duty to examine reliable evidence to determine congressional intent to exclude. The only question here that must be answered is which of the two tests did the original statute mean? Proper construction and interpretation of an ambiguous statute has a mandatory hierarchy of evidence and the relative weight of each element primarily is non-discretionary. The most reliable evidence that we have of the intent of the enacting Congress is in the words of the original statute itself. There is not a default rule that upon a finding of facial ambiguity that, that there is a finding also in favor of the government. This court has never applied a default rule either in Schlaer or Burke. The requirement is a diligent search of all reliable evidence for the clear intent to exclude whether found in the words of the current statute, the words of the original statute, or other reliable evidence. Well, why would you want a clear intent to exclude? I mean, because of the basic ground rule that everything is presumed to be income? Yes, that is correct. But that works against you, doesn't it? And the main rule for income tax 
as I think everyone agrees, is that unless there's an exemption, it's taxable. And it has always been understood, not simply in the context of 104, but throughout the code, that if there's an ambiguity in an exemption, it should be read in favor of the government, not the taxpayer. My argument is that in the face of an ambiguity, that you need to look to the intent of Congress before you decide in favor of the government. And if there is clear and reliable evidence, clear and reliable evidence, that there was an intent to exclude, that should control before a default rule. I thought the conclusion you were going to come to is then there is no ambiguity. I'm sorry. <laughs> In which case, it seems to me your case would be a lot easier. Well, aren't you basically saying there's no ambiguity? Yes, taken as a whole. If this is a holistic endeavor and we look at the history of the words written by Congress, even after divided in 1954, then there is no ambiguity in the statute. But Section 104A2, read out of its context, has shown an ambiguity that each court that's dealt with has struggled with. You say the the words are uh, ambiguous, but if you take the history together with the words, then there's no ambiguity. I think the words taken out of context, a short phrase taken out of the context of its original statute, are ambiguous without its context. But we don't interpret things out of context. I mean, when we ask whether it's ambiguous, we we mean whether it's ambiguous in in context, right? Isn't that what we mean? The appellate courts that have looked at this have given no regard to the original statute. So you say they were wrong? I say they were wrong. Because they were taking it out of context. Yes. Right. And ambiguity out of context doesn't count, right? Doesn't count. Out of context doesn't count. It is plain if you take the entire statute read as a whole. And finally, the original statute was plain on its face in context. The clear distinction between compensation for personal injuries and the amount of any damages is the clear comparison in the original statute. Congress did not intend an allocation. Thank you, Ms. King. Thank you. Mr. Jones, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Two terms ago in Commissioner v. Schleyer, this Court held that an award of damages that is punitive in nature rather than compensatory does not constitute damages on account of personal injury within the meaning of Section 104A2. That holding applies directly to this case and is compelled by the text, structure, history, and purpose of this statute. The text of the statute provides an exclusion from income only for damages awarded on account of the personal injury. It does not, as petitioners contend, encompass simply any recovery obtained in an action in connection with a personal injury. Indeed, that precise contention was rejected by this court in Schleyer. In Schleyer, the court said that whether the underlying cause of action uh, is on account of, or rather whether the damages are received in connection with an underlying cause of action that is a tort-type action for personal injuries is not, in the words of the court, the beginning and end of the analysis. Instead, as the court emphasized in Schleyer, each element of the recovery must be on account of the personal injury for the statutory exclusion to apply. Only damages that compensate for a loss and are attributable to it are on account of the injury within the meaning of the statute. 
As this court said 40 years ago in Commissioner versus Glenshaw Glass, damages for personal injury are by definition compensatory only and do not include punitive and other ancillary recoveries. This court's decision in Schleyer provides two applications of the statute in this context. The court in Schleyer did not doubt that age discrimination affects personal injuries to the victims of the discrimination. But the court pointed out that the two remedies provided by statute for that discrimination, back wages and liquidated damages for willful violations of the act, did not compensate for those personal injuries, were not attributable to those injuries. They therefore were not on account of those injuries within the meaning of the statute. The, in, sorry, I've obviously lost my train of thought. Because the damages are not awarded on account of the injury, they're not within the scope of the statutory exclusion from income, which, as this court has said on many occasions, must be narrowly interpreted and applied. Now, punitive damages in the decisions of this court have never been held to be compensation, and they are not awarded on account of an injury. Punitive damages, as this court has often said, are a civil fine awarded to punish and to deter reprehensible conduct. They are not compensation for the injury itself. And I think it's important to point out that the Kansas cases on which petitioners now rely for the first time in their reply brief make exactly that same point. In Brewer versus Homestake Production Company at 200 Kansas, page 96, the Kansas Supreme Court states, and I quote, in this state, exemplary damages are not regarded as compensatory in any degree, close quote. That is exactly the statement that the court made in Moltsoff, that this court made in Moltsoff and in Gertz. Now, what if this came up from a state where the Supreme Court had said something else about uh, something more favorable to the petitioners about the nature of exemplary damages? Sometimes, if you will, writing in an academic fashion, courts look at the fact that these monies go to the plaintiff and say perhaps they serve a compensatory purpose in that respect. The money goes there. But no court, to my knowledge, has held that a jury may award punitive damages as additional compensation. What courts instruct juries and what juries do is they award punitive damages as deterrence and and punishment for particular types of egregious misbehavior. The Kansas Supreme Court is a, is a classic example of that because the Kansas Supreme Court said, well, punitive damages are not compensatory in any degree, but a jury may consider the amount of actual damages in deciding what punitive damages are appropriate to accomplish the state's independent objectives of punishing and deterring the conduct. As the Fifth Circuit said just last year in the State of Moore versus Commissioner, which is not cited in our brief, but which I've mentioned to Petitioner's Council. It's at 53 F. 3rd at 716. What the Fifth Circuit said in the state of Moore is that this fact does not make a punitive award a compensatory one. It does not, as the court said in that case, change the fundamental truth that punitive damages are awarded only on account of and in proportion to the defendant's wrongful conduct. Thus, that court and all but one of the courts of appeals have concluded that punitive damages being awarded on account of the reprehensible conduct and not as compensation to the injuries do not come within the statutory exclusion. The one court that reached a different conclusion, the Horton case in the Sixth Circuit, relied solely on a rationale that this court flatly rejected in Schleyer, 
What the court said in Horton is that any recovery obtained in an action based upon a personal injury is exempt from tax for that reason alone. In fact, in Horton, the court said that is the beginning and end of the analysis. In Flyer, although this court didn't cite Horton, the court referred to that same contention and said that is not the beginning and end of the analysis. In, in, in Schleyer, we also said that, that uh, whether one treats respondents attaining the age of 60 or his being laid off on account of his age as the proximate cause of respondents' loss of income, neither the birthday nor the discharge can fairly be described as a personal injury or sickness. I mean, isn't that one explanation of Schleyer that doesn't apply here? It is, it is a, it is the, 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 the portion, it is the explanation of why those damages aren't on account of the personal injury, but the court said. There was no personal injuries, what, what, what we were saying. No, I believe, Justice Scalia, that what the court acknowledged in Schleyer was that age discrimination, the but for, but for the age discrimination, these recoveries would not have been obtained. But the court pointed out that these recoveries were not on account of that personal injury that stems from the age discrimination. The personal injury is not compensation uh, by, by back wages and by liquidated or punitive damages under the ADEA. That sentence suggests to me that, that we thought that, uh, uh, that the gravamen of the complaint was not personal injury or sickness. And that's a totally different point from whether it was on account of or not. Well, but that's the point. The, the question in these cases is not what is the gravamen of the complaint. The question is whether the recovery is on account of the personal injury. It has to be on account of personal injury or, or sickness. But you're, you're laying Schleier before us as though what it proves is that there was no on account of there, which is what this case is that there was not. But really what I think it proves is that there was no physical injury or sickness there. Actually, I, uh, Justice Scalia, we, uh, only by reference to the opinion can this question be answered, but my recollection of the opinion is that the court acknowledged in Schleyer that, that age discrimination affects personal injuries. The court also acknowledged in Schleyer, twice in a footnote and once in the text, that if the compensation obtained under the Act was on account of those injuries, it would be within the statutory exclusion. But what the court quite clearly held was that an award that is punitive in nature rather than compensatory cannot be said to be on account of the injuries, which is what five of the circuits have concluded when the same issue has been presented in the context of this case. The, the text of the statute, in our view, and I believe in the court's view in Schleyer, compels that conclusion. The, the title and structure of the Act reflect the same understanding. The title of Section 104 is Compensation for Injuries or Sickness. Each of the subsections of the statute relates solely to compensation for different types of injuries. None of them provide an exemption from tax for any recovery that's not compensatory. The history of the Act is fairly clear on this. Each, uh, several of the courts of appeals have described in detail the fact that this statute is derived directly from the 1918 opinion of the Attorney General holding that recoveries for personal injuries are akin to a return of capital. They merely make the taxpayer whole for a personal loss and would not represent income as that term was then understood. As this court said 40 years after that in Glenshaw Glass, that underlying rationale supports exclusion of compensatory awards, but it does not support exclusion of punitive damages. <coughs> the text 
The structure, the history, the purpose of the statute all support this conclusion. It's also compelled that... Mr. Jones, I think you're coming here. Before you leave, I'd like you to comment on the 1989 amendment. Now, I understand, of course, it doesn't govern this case because it happened later. But let's assume that if that had been in the statute from the beginning, would you not think that uh, the better reading of the statute would have been that the punitive damages were excludable? That's a difficult hypothetical, but if, if it had been in the statute from the beginning with the history that it had, my answer would be that it does not affect the outcome in this case. I mean, we briefed rather clearly, I thought, on this subject. The 1989 amendment quite clearly was designed to answer the question it addresses and was quite clearly designed not to answer any other question. That is but, but is it not a fair reading of it, as your opponent argues, to suggest that the Congress that enacted that amendment must have assumed that the punitive da- this sort of punitive damages were excludable? It, it is neither factually nor legally a fair reading of the statute. It's not factually a fair reading because the legislative history shows that Congress carefully crafted this provision to avoid taking a position on whether punitive damages were excluded for physical injury cases. They wanted to solve this question about punitive damages in non-physical injury cases. They had an agreement, they had a majority to accomplish that. They did not have a majority or an agreement to accomplish the resolution of the entire... Let me make the case a little harder for you. Supposing some of us felt that uh, we shouldn't look at legislative history, then it would be a little bit harder to explain, wouldn't it? No, that's my legal point. Legally, it would still be irrelevant because it is quite clear that exclusions from income are not to be obtained by inference. You cannot use a negative inference out of the 1989 amendment to create to do what, frankly, what this court said in its footnote in Burke, that this amendment allows the recovery of punitive damages in physical injury cases. This isn't a negative inference. This is simply application of the usual rule that you interpret every, every word of a statute as having some effect. Those words except for, you know, uh, uh, except for uh, punitive damages in, in, in these other areas, would have been totally unnecessary. Well, that's not the way it's written, Justice Scalia. What, the 1989... Where, where, where is the text? I, I, I don't have the text right in front of me. Is it in your brief at some point? Yes, I'm sure that it is. The way Justice Blackman describes it in Burke was that the enactment... Uh, allowed exclusion of punitive damages only in cases involving physical injury or physical sickness. What, at page 30 of our brief, Justice Scalia, okay. we quote the, uh, the provisions from the 1989 Act. Thank you. And what it says is... What about on page 30? In the middle of the, of the full paragraph. It says the House bill was modified to provide only that the Section 104A2 exclusion shall not apply to any punitive damages received in connection with a case not involving physical injury. To... To take that to mean the positive, you have to infer that, that, therefore, any punitive damages awarded in a case involving punitive, involving physical injuries is to be excluded. That's the kind of exclusion by implication that is a matter of statutory construction that the court would but not But my point stop. is, unless that is what Congress, um, what the, I don't care what Congress had in mind, unless that, that's what the text of the statute had in mind, the, the language with a case not involving physical injury or physical sickness could have simply been left out. In order to give that phrase any meaning, what the, you, you must assume that, that uh, where it is uh, a case involving physical injury or physical sickness, 
punitive damages are included within the exemption. The way that the provision had read, I'm, I'm speaking from memory now. This isn't in here, although it's described in here. The way the provision was read before it was amended in conference would have provided that amounts attribute, uh, uh, punitive damages received in connection with a claim involving punitive physical injury are excluded. In other words, it would have said exactly what what you're saying it should be inferred this in you're using legislative history again i thought oh, we were well, just going to look at the text well i i looking at the text there is no other explanation for the whole phrase in connection with a case not involving physical injury or physical sickness you look, may as well have dropped it out entirely unless you assume that uh, uh, that in those cases you, it is within the exemption what what you're saying i tell you, mr jones is that congress wished to deal with this particular category and leave what wasn't covered there to the pre-existing law absolutely and and, and i think justice Scalia with all respect, that that's exactly what the statute indicates. And the only point I'm making, uh, well, there's two points. One is none of this matters to the resolution of this case. But the other point is this court has often said, and I think it's important holding, that exclusions from income are not implied. That is to say, there must be an express exclusion. And to create an inference out of these two negatives is not unimaginable. It's just not consistent with the way that the court would approach these kinds of questions. Mr. Jones, uh, you quoted, and, and maybe it's on the same page, uh, you quoted, I think, someone uh, who expressly drew the conclusion uh, that Congress meant to treat only this subject and to leave yes. uh, all other applications. Was, was that in a, in a journal, law journal article or was that in the legislative history? Well, the, what we quoted was his article, but what okay. he relies on is the legislative history. He was history. relying on In detail, I've read the article, and he has very detailed explanation of the various drafts of the bill and the statements within the committee. Um, if that issue were, were relevant to the disposition of the case, I would refer the court to that more detailed discussion on that subject. I also, I also need to correct what I believe is a fundamental misstatement of counsel on this issue. Uh, having heard his argument, I would get the impression that most courts had interpreted the 89 Amendment to help their case. Uh, in fact, uh, all but one of the courts of appeals have uh, said about this 1989 Amendment almost exactly what I've just said to the court, that it doesn't address this issue. It addresses a different issue. It, it consciously addressed a narrow issue and consciously left this other issue untouched, just as, this, uh, just as Congress did in the 96 Amendment, where they prospectively uh, authoritatively determined punitive damages are not within the statutory exclusion. Which really brings me to my last point. Uh, in our view, and in the view of the tax court in the Bagley case, uh, this court's opinion in Schleyer resolved this issue. It says that damages that are punitive in nature and not compensatory uh, are not within the statutory exclusion precisely because they're not awarded on account of the personal injury. That is exactly what the Treasury said in its 1984 ruling on this subject said that the punitive damages are not on account of the injury, they're not compensation for the injury, they're not within the statutory exclusion. Mr. Jones, were you going to address the statute of limitations problem in this case? I, that'll be my next point. I think I have time. Um, the um, uh, Schleyer being only 18 months old, I, I mean, it seems obvious to point out that the principles of stare decisis are very strong in tax cases. <laughs> And they should be especially strong in this context where Congress has prospectively reached the same conclusion in amending the statute for all tax years. From the I assume forward. you think we ought to disavow the footnote in Burke. Um, I think the footnote in Burke was dicta, and I, and I think it's honest to say that the court wasn't briefed on that issue. 
Um, and, and other courts have said that they believe that that statement was dictated. The 1989 amendment has not yet actually been before the court, although this is the third section. Of no, but it really would be ironic if we were to say the law was pretty clear up to 89, and that's all involved now, and it's clear now after 96. But in this interval, if you read the statute on its face during that period, someone might say, well, there's a different result in here. And that's I, why one, one of the things that concerns me. I think that's why the 96 amendment was that takes care of everything. Prospectively, right. I mean, it removed the, the shadow. And we decide this case without the effect of the 89 Amendment, but around the corner there may be a case that arose in 1991 uh, squarely presents the, the, the question whether the footnote in Burke was right or not. I would hope, and I'm sure the court would hope, that that case doesn't come around the corner. <laughs> well, and you don't think any punitive damages were awarded during those years? I doubt it. But uh, they were the sitting circuits. There was only one outlying circuit, right. so the circuits have the all circuits rejected. Have not had any difficulty with this this issue about the eighty nine amendment. Um, on the statute of limitations point, um, petitioners claim uh, that the statute of limitations for suits to recover an erroneous refund expired before this suit was brought by the government. Uh, that contention is wrong for two reasons. Uh, first, petitioners don't dispute that they did not raise this issue in the district court. And when they raised it in the Court of Appeals, they did so solely on the theory that a failure to comply with the statute of limitations would deprive the court of subject matter jurisdiction. Now, as we state in our brief, and as petitioners do not address at all, um, this is an ordinary type of statute of limitations that limits only the recovery on the claim. It does not limit the jurisdiction of the court. Thus, even if the statute of limitations had not been complied with, this court would have jurisdiction, the lower courts would have jurisdiction, and such a holding would therefore have no remedial significance. They can't raise at this point a suggestion that the failure to comply with the statute was an affirmative defense. <coughs> because they waived the issue by not raising it in the but district they, court. They answered that, that you in turn waived, because you didn't mention that in your brief in opposition. And, and, and my point on that issue is that the court, because this relates only to subject matter jurisdiction, the court has to decide, it seems to me, first, whether this claim relates to subject matter jurisdiction, because if it just decided the statute of limitations issue it as an unanchored legal principle, it would have no remedial significance in this case. And the court rarely, and to my knowledge, has never decided an issue that doesn't have remedial well, I thought that, the, that their argument was simply, if we waived, then you're failing to bring up, to challenge the Tenth Circuit ruling. The Tenth Circuit ruling was in favor of the, um, Tenth Circuit ruling was in favor of the government, right? On the merits. Yeah. On the merits of right. the statute. Right. Um, and then they challenged that here, and you didn't object to it. Oh, not only on the merits. We didn't point out, as we... And everybody our, agrees, that, well, that this is not a statute of limitations um, that operates against the taxpayer and no question of sovereign immunity. So uh, no, no one has said this is jurisdictional. Oh, well, that's, their, that's the only basis on which they, they have raised it, even to this point. And it's the only basis on which the court could address it. And I, 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 it's just to repeat myself, but I think it's, it's, it's the reason why even if under the court might say, well, you, the government didn't raise this point, the point that we didn't raise is that, is that this statute doesn't relate to subject matter jurisdiction. Well, I suppose that's a jurisdictional point, and I, I suppose the court has to decide whether it relates to subject matter jurisdiction before it well, decides. Well, if, if we can just get to the, to the um, merits, you yeah. may be right that they're, that they're waived. 
One question that I had is on, on the question of, of the date of payment, is it the receipt? Or, there's, a, there's a section of the code, 6602, that talks about interest due to the government when the government overpays the taxpayer then gets back the overpayment with the interest. Yes. What is the date from which the interest runs? Uh, it says that the interest is due, what is it, what are the words? Uh, I have the statute here. The interest shall bear interest um, from the date of the payment of the refund. What, what is the date of the payment for purposes of the interest provision? I, uh, I don't have the text of that in front of me, but as you've described it, um, I, I'm not, I don't hear any words that would lead me to think that it would be different from the date of the payment, the making of the refund in this context, because what the court held in United States versus Wirtz is that uh, the date of the making of the refund is the date on which the refund was paid. Well, it really, it didn't make any difference in Wirtz. The key thing was that they rejected the one date that would have made the claim too late. Well, let me see if I can put this point in perspective, uh, just to state it from the beginning. Second, uh, but the, the reason that I ask the question is, if the government's calculation of interest has to depend on the date of receipt, the government won't know that. I mean, it knows when it mails the check, but it doesn't know. So when it reclaims the overpayment and sends the interest bill at the same time, how will it know the starting date for the interest because it doesn't know the date of receipt. Justice Ginsburg, you've triggered a recollection that is only vague for me. I believe that there may be a regulation or even additional statutory provision that addresses the precise point you're making under that uh, interest statute. And I do not remember exactly what it says. So I'm afraid I can't be of too much help to you on that other than to say that I do believe that there's some specific substantive provision of law uh, that has been adopted to address that point. Is, is there then, if you don't, is there any reason, what I thought of doing to, to answer this is to look up how the law works in the area of contracts and how it works in the area of money had and received, say an insurance company uh, that makes an erroneous refund, how does the statute of limitations work there? My guess from recollecting my first year law of contracts is that the contract is good when it's, the re acceptance is mailed. Well, yes, Therefore, the statute of limitations would run from that time, and I bet it's the same with money had and received. I bet it's made. Well, a contract may be made by putting it in the mail oh, as well, a matter of a common law rule. No, but a, a refills no, no, uh, under uh, NI, uh, normal law on making is the date on the check. <laughs> and, and that may also be true, but yeah. what's relevant here is that what has to be made is a refund. And what the court said in words is that a refund is the actual repayment. It's not a contract. It's not a... a but it said that in rejecting an argument that you should look at the date when the refund was authorized, which was clearly wrong. It really didn't focus on this distinction. Oh, I don't think it focused on it, but I think in... in it did a, use the word date every, of payment. And I should point out, every court that has addressed this issue has concluded... Well, refund at least requires delivery. I mean, if the government simply draws a check and keeps it, surely not, nothing has started. Of course not. And, and as this court did say in words, and I think that it answers this question if, if the other part of it that I've quoted doesn't, is that, is that a, a payment, which the court said is what a refund is, a payment uh, isn't made uh, even when the check is mailed and signed and mailed. Why would we want because one rule? Because the payment for, can be stopped. Why, why, why would we want one rule when an insurance company makes a refund or any private person uh, and the government have a different rule when it's totally silent on the matter? Well, I wouldn't one, refund for the law be good on mailing or not good on mailing for everybody alike. 
Well, one one obvious difference is that the, um, is, is this court's law, in addition to words, I think words answers this question, but even if, even if one wanted to look beyond words... But isn't uh, words a little bit like Burke in that respect? All, all words had to do is to say that the uh, time hasn't run, period. It had to reject one in reading. Whatever it said about, there were a number of dates you could pick. Only one was out of the ballpark. I think the difference is that in Wirtz we're talking about the ratio decidendi of the court. And in Burke we were talking about a footnote that related to a statute that wasn't before the court and wasn't involved. The ratio decidendi of, Ber- of Wirtz was that a refund is an actual repayment. It is not simply putting the check in the mail because the check can be uh, canceled and the payments stopped, as the court said. Now, there's one other reason. But that then, if, if, that's, if that really is the criterion, then it's, it's the date of negotiating the check. Well, I think that you might stop be the most... while it's in the, re, uh, the, the, the recipient's hand. That might be the most faithful application of the statute, and, and frankly... But I then you said it would be the same thing for the interest, and so the interest thing, that would be even more uncertain, the date the check, check is cast. I want to make it clear, Justice Ginsburg, that I don't believe I have a view on the interest issue at this point. I'm just not in a position well, to give you an answer on that. The government is not going to know when the statute of limitations runs. If, in fact, it isn't the time it mailed, but the time it's received by somebody. The, the, the court pointed out in words that, that it is implausible to think that Congress started the statute of limitations running on a date before the cause of action accrued. The cause of action here accrues only when the payment is made. It does not accrue simply by putting a check in the mail. We can't sue someone uh, for an erroneous refund because we sent them a check. We can sue them because they received money that we want back. Of course, if you use what you say may be the most faithful uh, uh, position, which is at the time the, the payment is actually made by the government, the government would know that. Yes, they would. And, and, and there would be records on that. And you, you, you don't exclude that as, as a possibility. As I said, I think that's the most, faith, most faithful reading of the statute. It's a reading that some courts have adopted. There are two district court opinions that have stopped short and said it's at the date of receipt. But under any interpretation that any court has ever expressed, the government wins in this case. But the government doesn't win if it's the date of mailing. That would be the only circumstance in which the government would not win, and there's no authority to support that proposition. And in any event, you say this was waived. In any event, we believe it was quite clearly waived. If there are no further questions, I'm through. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jones. Mr. McAllister, you have two minutes (coughs) remaining. Do you agree that if we don't hold the statute jurisdictional that you have waived it? No, I don't, Your Honor. I believe that we raised the issue in the Tenth Circuit. The Tenth Circuit addressed it on the merits, and under this Court's rules, the government had an obligation to object to any procedural problem in its response to our petition for writ of certiorari. It did not do so, so I believe, in effect, it has waived any objection, and this Court now, under its precedent, is entitled to reach that issue on the merits. And I do not believe it makes a difference whether it's treated as subject matter jurisdiction or not. You, you did admit that uh, the refund was made on July 9 in the answer to the complaint. What, what the stipulation says is the amounts were refunded. Uh, they do not, and basically what that means... Well, but your, your, your answer to the complaint uh, is, is, is not inconsistent with that stipulation. In the answer to the complaint, you admitted that it was July 9. That the, the amount was refunded on July 9th. What that meant was that was the date on which the check was received. They didn't say that the refund was made, and in our view, making should refer to the last act, basically, the government needs to perform to complete the process, which was after it's issued the check, put it in the mail to the taxpayer. At that point, the government has made its determination, the money's on its way, 
And at that point, that is really the last point at which the government can know with certainty its window of opportunity has begun to run. After you, that, wouldn't, you wouldn't make that argument if you never received the check, would you? As a, no, we would certainly suggest that if we had not received the check, the government could The government wouldn't be, be suing to get it back either. That's right. If you never there would be no case. It. But it might be saying that it had made the refund. It might. It might. Uh, you know how it works with a private company. With a private company, I do not, Your Honor. I do know the mailbox so That might be the right law. rule, but nobody, we haven't looked it up yet. Right. We did talk about the, the mailbox rule and contract law in our reply brief. One point I'd like to make... It was just oversight that you didn't bring this up in the first instance. In the first instance, yes, Your Honor. The, the 1989 amendment, if I could go back to that for a moment, this court in Burke in a footnote did suggest that it has the reading and the, certainly the Congress understood what we claim Congress understood in Section 8, or in, in 1989 about... All of these, uh, these tax years were all before 1989, though, weren't they? So, Correct. in fact, the way the law read at the time that's relevant here did not contain the 1989 amendment. Correct, John. Thank you, Mr. Thank McAllister. You. The case is submitted. We'll hear our...